face the world. By far the most of what I'll be teaching tonight is covered in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is a, is a magnificent book. It is, in fact, one of the greatest tools in the Bible for understanding the Old Testament. And when you grasp what the book of Hebrews is telling us, then you understand Paul's teaching to the Galatians that the law has been fulfilled and finished, and Jesus Christ is now the author and mediator of a new covenant. Guys, I hate to say this. Usually we have to stop that ringing because it's just it's ringing back, and I guess you can hear it. I'm not sure if you can or not, but I can. I apologize. And when you start the recording, start it over from now, if you will. <laughs> Just turn it lower and lower if you have to. They'll hear me. All right, so, Hebrews. And if you have your Bible tonight, you might want to turn and follow me. I'm not going to give you chapter and verse for every scripture I bring to you. There are reasons for that. It'll take time, and I don't want you to really be looking up every one that I give you, but you might want to write some of them down. Although I repeat to you that there will be a written manuscript of this message tonight available to you later on, and all the scripture references will be in that. In the book of Genesis, this is where the book of Hebrews starts, really. So in Genesis chapter 14, there's the first mention of this mysterious, unique, spiritual person, Melchizedek. And on this occasion, he met Abram, who had not yet even become Abraham. Abram had just finished a battle that he and his compatriots had engaged in with a, a gathering of kings who had attacked Sodom, the city. And in attacking that city and conquering it, they had carried off Lot, Abraham's nephew. And when Abraham learned that they had taken Lot and his family captive, he became incensed by that, gathered up his supporters and colleagues for battle, and with those men and in excess of 300 of Abram's men, they went against the kings who had conquered Sodom and had taken Lot and his family captive. Well, God gave them favor, the Bible says, gave them victory, and they overcame the enemy, set Lot and his family free, and on their way back to their own destination, to their own place of residence, Abram and his followers were met by a, this mysterious man who just appeared before them. And this is the beginning, the introduction to Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14, starting at verse 18. This is what it says in the NIV. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hands. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now, this man was a messenger of God. There are some who say he was an angel. There are some who say he was a man chosen of God to fill a particular ministry. And that's what he did. I tend to believe that he was a man that God had raised up, that God had chosen, and sent him out on the mission of a high priest in a time when there was no knowledge of God in the land. There was no understanding. There was no. There was no. There was very little perception about God except what men had learned from one another in the, in their own lives and as they had matured in their own lives. So it was a rather primitive time in a lot of ways 
especially for the message of God to the world. So Melchizedek met Abram on this return from his victorious endeavor against the kings who had conquered the city of Sodom and who had taken Lot and his family captives. They had been set free, Lot and his family, and they'd been sent back now to their, uh, to their home. Abraham was returning to his home. And he met this man unexpectedly, unplanned, a man who was unknown to him. But when he appeared in the presence of Abram, he spoke to Abram first. And he said, Blessed be Abram by God most high. Well, he'd been blessed, and he's praising him for the victory. And then he blessed God who had blessed Abram. And then he said that God has delivered your enemies into your hand. And then, and then, I find this somewhat shocking, except in the understanding of deep spiritual perception. Abraham had taken the spoils of the battle. He had taken that which the kings he had conquered gave up in their loss to him in battle. He was coming back with great spoils, and he was already quite a wealthy man. So when he met Melchizedek, and Melchizedek pronounced upon him this blessing of God, the Bible says that Abram, without any hesitation or without any reservation, gave him a tenth of everything. So the first preacher he met on his way back from the battle, he gave him 10% of everything he owned. That was a pretty good message that Melchizedek brought. Caused Abraham to give him 10% of everything. Now, this is an important thing for us to understand because Melchizedek, we're going to see, is a type of Christ. And Christ fulfills that type. That's what we're really going to talk about as we go forward. It's important for us to understand all the lessons that are here for us in this vast array of spiritual truth. Now, we talk about the tithe today, and when we think about the tithe, we usually think about it as it was practiced by the Israelites in the Old Testament. And that, I will tell you honestly, had been so convoluted by the law that hardly anyone could really, truly keep the exact giving of the tithe or paying of the tithe. It was not a giving on their part. It was a paying. It was an obligation. But the tithe didn't start under the law. The law changed it. The law attached to it. But it didn't start under the law. So when folks say, well, the tithe is an Old Testament message, it is. They say it's a message of the law. It is not. This is the time before the law existed, 400 years before the law ever came into being. Way before the time of Moses. And so... Abram knew something from God. This is a man that could hear God. He could recognize God's voice. He knew what God was speaking to him. He had followed God as the, as the prime example for men and women who want to hear the voice of God and by faith walk out of everything and follow God to where he wants them to go and where he wants to lead them. So here he is now hearing this man pronounce the blessing about him, recognizing by the Spirit of God that this man is anointed of God, God's chosen, God's servant, God's special chosen servant, God's distinctive chosen servant. And Abraham voluntarily, willingly, I believe having him spoken to by the Holy Spirit of God, turns over and gives everything, a tenth of all he owns to Melchizedek. So the first tither... In the Bible is Abram, led by the Holy Spirit, not taught by any written word, communicated with by God himself, speaking to him about this holy, chosen, sanctified, set-apart man, Melchizedek, who ministered to him, and Abram gave him a tithe. I'm not going to dwell any more on that, but I'll just let you know that that's a significant thing for you and me to understand. We ought to recognize what value God puts on our giving back to him of that from that which he has poured out upon us. That's what Abram did. And he did it because he recognized he was in the presence of God in the representation of Melchizedek, and he had spoken to him. Now, the only other time in the Old Testament that Melchizedek is mentioned is 
in the book of Psalms. So the prophecies that are in Psalms, and much of the Psalms are prophetic, the prophecies that are in Psalms often speak of the Messiah, and the psalmist didn't really know all that they were writing about or understand all they were writing about, but it was known, this man Melchizedek was known in the nation of Israel. His name was well known, well known among those who knew anything about the movement of God and the work of God in their lives and in the lives of their nation. In fact, I would say to you that Melchizedek was one of the heroes of the Israelites of the Old Testament. They knew him so well. And it was because not of their initial care about Melchizedek, their initial care about Abraham, who they revered so highly. Abraham, who became Abraham, they revered him so highly, held him in such steep uh, esteem and in such great regard that this man that Abraham admired and, and liked and appreciated so much that he gave him a tenth of his possessions, they considered this to be an outstanding holy man. So the prophet of Psalms in Psalm 110 verse 4 said, The Lord has sworn forever and will not change his mind. You, that's prophetically speaking of Jesus Christ, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And then the message goes into the New Testament. And I'm going to talk to you about some really New Testament things right now. Jesus was not qualified to be a priest under the Old Testament covenant. He was not qualified certainly to be a high priest. He couldn't be a normal, regular, everyday priest because he did not have the qualifications of the Israelites that they demanded for the priesthood. So by the law, by the Old Testament, by the Old Covenant, and this is important, Jesus could not be a priest. And yet the Bible says to us that Jesus is not only our priest, he is our high priest. And because he is our high priest, it means that we have access through him to come to Father God at any time. His being our high priest makes it possible for us to acknowledge Father God and come to him as with an open door to be received by open arms by our Father God because we're not coming through ourselves and on our own merit. We're coming in the name of Jesus on his merit, by his sacrifice, and that gives us an openness into the very heart of God. So, if Jesus wasn't qualified to be a high priest, then how could he be a high priest? He is a priest forever, as the psalmist said, and as Hebrews is going to tell us, he is a priest forever, not just now, not just then, but forever a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And that's singularly important. I'm going to develop this now so I want you to clearly understand it from the very basics and from the very details. There is, in the New Testament, is a complete break, a complete separation from the Old Testament. The new covenant supersedes the old covenant. And the new covenant is the message of Jesus Christ and his offer of salvation to the world. When Jesus died on the cross, the old economy faded away. When he rose from the dead, it was fulfilled, completed forever never to be used or called up again by spiritual people who believe in salvation by the grace of God and by the blood of Jesus Christ and who received him as our Savior. That nullifies for us, for all believers, all of the Old Testament. All of the Old Testament that has to do with the law. Now, there were customs that the people had. There were ancestors. There were a lot of things that went on that didn't come under the law in the life of the daily Israelite. But most of his life was affected by the law because everything to do with religion and with Jehovah God and his relationship with God came through the law after that law was given until it was finished, fulfilled. The message of the Old Testament was completed when Jesus died on the cross. And when Jesus died on the cross, there are a number of things that happened. There are miracles that occurred at the time that Jesus was dying on the cross. One of those great miracles was the rending of the veil, the tearing apart of the veil in the temple. 
Let me give you this picture, and this is important for you to understand now, to follow me point by point and very carefully. In the Old Testament tabernacle, and in the following temple that was built by Solomon and then by others by Herod restored along the way, there was a central ingredient on the inside of that temple. You walk in the outer court, any Jew was entitled to come into the outer court. And there were certain tables uh, or pieces of religious furniture that they went through. They went through their procedure. And then the next phase of the temple was the holy place. And in the holy place, only priests were allowed to go. And they were allowed to go into a certain strict regimen. They had to follow that strictness. To, 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 to that, That's where Zechariah was when... Uh, when uh, he was serving in the, in the temple in his rotation of the priesthood uh, in the New Testament when news came to him about, uh, about uh, the birth of John the Baptist, Zacharias, his father. So that, that's what Zechariah was doing. And the priests carried on that ritual daily, routinely, all through the years and all through the centuries up to the time that Jesus died on the cross. Now, Jesus came, and he was taken to the cross and crucified. When he was crucified, that veil, and the veil, here's the veil. The holy place, and then the holy of holies. Sometimes called the most holy place was the next sanctuary within the temple. The the Old Testament tabernacle that the Jews moved around with them as they moved about in no bad life, and then in the stationary temple when it was built in Jerusalem. In that Old Testament tabernacle followed by the temple, there was the third part, the outer court, the inner court, and then the Holy of Holies, sometimes referred to as the most holy place. It was a place that was so holy to all the Israelites that the presence of God was shut off from everyone by the veil that went from the top of the tabernacle to all over to the side, down to the bottom, and blocked off the Holy of Holies completely. So nobody ever saw the inside of the Holy of Holies because this veil, sometimes said to be as much as 18 inches thick, was there. And there was no opening in that curtain. There was no little door you could go in, no little slice that you could pull it back and walk. There was no opening because nobody was allowed in there. It was the presence of God. And sin kept man from the presence of God. That's what that is saying. It is shut off so tightly that no one can go in there except under the strictest provisions that Father God provided. And this is the only entrance that was granted to the Holy of Holies. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest of the nation had to first make a sacrifice for his own sins because he had to be sinless by blood sacrifice before he could go into the Holy of Holies. And then... Uh, an animal was sacrificed so that he could take the blood in for the sins of all the people on the Day of Atonement. For all the things, sins that had not been covered by the daily sacrifices offered in the temple. And all the blood that was shed on all the altars of Israel, especially in the temple. All the sin that had not been covered by that shedding of blood was now to be covered on the Day of Atonement by the act of repentance and contrition by the high priest, and it could only be done by the high priest. There was no substitute. So the high priest now made offering for his own sins, and then he had an offering for the sins of the people. When he went into the Holy of Holies, he had to go in and lift up, with help I'm sure, the corner of the veil to pull it back so he could slip in. There was no access provided for him, and the only way he could slip in through the corner and, and, and get inside to the Holy of Holies was by obeying the strict regulations that God had put forth for them to observe. If he had done it any other way, God would have struck him dead. So he had to have the blood that he'd offered for his own sins. He had to have the blood he was taking in to offer for the sins of the nation. And when he went inside the Holy of Holies, it was to offer that sin on the altar of sacrifice where God most holy resided and his presence was there in Shekinah glory in that holy or most holy place. So now the high priest gets inside and he's only allowed to go in there once a year. 
when he finishes offering the sacrifice, he has to leave because if he stays, again, he'll be struck dead. Once he's offered the sacrifice for the sins of the people to cover that, which other blood sacrifices had not covered, he had to come out again, lifting up the corner of the veil to slip out. There was no door, no access, no way to get through that curtain other than that. No door there because there was no entrance for man to get to God other than the blood sacrifices which were temporary and were just symbolic of what was going to happen when Jesus died on the cross. So it was a symbolic thing, and, 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 and so they gave no door there. When the high priest went in, he actually went in as, a, uh, as almost like an uninvited guest, as a usurper, as one who didn't really have the right to be there. He had to lift up the corner and slip in under it. But that's the way God ordained it because God was shut off from man by sin, you see. And man had no access to God. I mean, they could call out to God and say, God, here's my sacrifice. But they did not have the priesthood that you and I have. Because of all we're talking about tonight, every child of God is now a priest of God. You don't need anybody else to intercede for you to get you into the presence of God. You don't need to, it's not required that you go through anybody else. You don't have to confess to anybody else. You don't have to be forgiven of your sins by anybody else. In fact, you can't be forgiven by anybody else. It is all what God has done in his great plan. So now here we are. Jesus dies on the cross. And when he dies, at that time when Jesus cries out, it is finished, the work, the plan of salvation is done. Jesus has made the offering, the sacrifice. The lamb has been offered on the altar of God. And God, Father God, has accepted this sinless blood, this sacrifice of this perfect lamb, Jesus of Nazareth, as the offering for sin, the sins of all mankind, for all time, and for all the world. So at the time that Jesus died, and he said, it is finished, and commended his spirit into the hands of the Father, at that time the Bible says the veil that curtain separating the holy of holies from all the rest of the temple. That veil was torn in two. The scripture makes it very clear. Torn in two from the top to the bottom to show that no man did it. It started at the top and the veil was rented to pulled apart, split open. And now anybody standing in the holy place in the temple would be able to look in and see that to the very throne of God, to the very ark of the covenant, to the very presence of the living God, saying to us that we now have access to Father God because Jesus Christ died on the cross for us, paid the price for our sins, and opened the way for us to come into the presence of God to make all of our petitions known, to bring our prayers and our faith and the offerings of our lives to Him. We have access to God through Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he made on the cross. So now, the complete break. That's the separation. This is why the Old Testament, as far as the law is concerned and the requirements of the law is concerned in the Old Testament, the Old Testament has no bearing on us. I'm not saying to you that there aren't good lessons and good truth and, and, and great things in the Old Testament. I'm saying as far as the Old Covenant is concerned in the Old Testament, that no longer applies to us. The law has been broken by the grace of God, by the blood of Jesus Christ, and because Jesus Christ is forever a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And this is how that works now. So there's a complete break between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The New Testament begins when the veil in the temple is torn apart. Again, I say to you, torn from the top to the bottom to show that it's an act of God, as Jesus died, an act of God, that this veil of them was split open. So now, let's go to the book of Hebrews and find out how Jesus is our high priest. Because as I said to you earlier, he was not qualified to be a high priest under the terms of the Israelites' priesthood, the Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament was not something that Jesus was or could be a part of. And it was planned that way because the Old Testament priesthood was abrogated 
at the time that the veil was split, that the, whole, the Old Testament priesthood was gone. We no longer, from that point on, they no longer needed a high priest to go in once a year and having uh, to shed blood for his own sins and then blood for the people and slip in under the curtain because the curtain wasn't there, it split open. So the, high, the job of the high priest, the basic job of the high priest was finished, of the Old Testament high priest was finished because now God is putting in place a new high priest so that we have one that we can go to the Father, through whom we can go to the Father, Jesus Christ. And because of that, there has to be a new order of priesthood. Jesus didn't qualify to be a priest under the Old Testament, so there has to be a new order of priesthood in order for Jesus to be our high priest. Do you see that? The reason he couldn't qualify to be a priest under the Old Testament is because all the priests had to be born in the tribe of Levi. If you weren't a Levite, you couldn't be a priest in Israel. It's not like us today, you know. You get a, you be a preacher and get your ordination and everything you need on the internet for fifty dollars. You know? <laughs> it wasn't like that. That was a very strict regiment, very, very strictly held regiment as to who could be a priest. The first thing was, if you were not a Levite, you were not a priest. Now, there may have been some Levites who didn't become priests. I don't know. Probably were. But I know this: there were no priests in the old economy, in the Old Testament, under the old covenant of Israel. There were no priests who were not Levites. They had to be born a Levi. And then through the uh, a, 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 for, through uh, inheritance or some process, they did have an election, but sometimes it was usually inheritance. The high priest rose out from among the Levites, and they had an order of the priesthood, and the priests rotated. All the Levites who were priests now rotated through the temple. They did their services at certain times. And it's very clear in the Bible that they had a procedure that they followed, but the first thing they had to do was be a Levi. Jesus wasn't born of the tribe of Levi. Jesus was born of the tribe of Judah. And so he, in the very beginning of his birth, he could never be a priest or a high priest because he was not a Levite. And yet the Bible says he is our high priest. And the reason for that, the very first reason, the beginning reason of that is that there is now a new covenant. Under the old covenant, which is gone, and we should all be rejoicing every day, thanking God that the old covenant has been fulfilled and therefore put aside that we're now living under a new testament, a new covenant, which in the glorious plan of God is led by our Savior Jesus Christ, who is the high priest of all the people of today who want to come to God and meet God on God's terms because God's terms will come to him through Jesus Christ. There's one God, the Bible says. Paul wrote it to Timothy. There's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He's the only one. There's no other high priest. In fact, there's no other priest except you and me. All, every believer, one of the great tenets of the faith of Protestantism that arose in the Reformation is this. We don't have to go to an an appointed priest to confess our sins and get forgiveness. We have to go to Jesus Christ, our high priest, and through him we have our own personal access to Father God. And through Jesus Christ and his shed blood, we have forgiveness of sins and victory in him. So, so the breaking of the Old Testament between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now here in the book of Hebrews, the key verse of Hebrews is chapter 1, verse 3. That's the key verse to the book. I'm reading Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 now. The Son is the radiance of God's glory. The Son, Jesus. He's the radiance of God's glory. And the exact representation of His being. The exact reputation of God's being. Remember Jesus said, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The exact representation of his being. Sustaining, he, had, he, Jesus, is sustaining all things, the whole universe. He's sustaining it all by his powerful word. You can read in Colossians, you got a great amplification on this. As Paul wrote to the Colossians that Jesus is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he develops that point in a, in a very detailed way. Now, the last part of that verse says this. After he had provided purification for sins. He provided purification, purification for sins when he died on the cross. 
took his blood to the Father, to the throne, and offered it for all the sins of the world, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, sat down at the right hand of Father God. This last sentence is amplified in the Amplified Bible to say this, when he himself and no other had by offering himself on the cross as a sacrifice for sin, accomplished purification from sins, and established our freedom from guilt, when he had done that, he sat down, which revealed his completed work, at the right hand of the majesty on high, which revealed his divine authority. He had the right to sit by the majesty on high. So he is there at the right hand of Father God, according to Hebrews 1.3, and I said that is the key verse of this entire book. So what is he doing now sitting there at the Father's right hand? Well, first of all, his presence is a declaration that the price for sin has been paid. His presence is a proof that sin has been paid for, never to be able to bring condemnation or judgment on us again, because it has been taken away by the forgiveness we have from God our Father through Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And then the other reason he's there, Hebrews 7.25. This is what it says. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. When it says, therefore, there are verses that precede that. And it tells about Jesus offering the sacrifice. He was the one sacrifice for all the sins of the world. And after all of that, it says, therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. So the reason we can come to God as our own, in our own priesthood is that Jesus, our high priest, is at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, letting the Father know, here, this one's qualified. He's an appointed priest. Your grace and my blood brought him to salvation. He's a, he has access to you. I'm going to put it in a little simpler term. Maybe this is over. Maybe this is oversimplification, which sometimes you may do to make a point. And I come on early in the morning. I get up and I go and I get on my knees and I and I and I start to pray. And somewhere up there in the heavenly realm, where Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, Jesus says to the Father, "Now we know Him. That's Bill. We know Him. He's He's been here before." He has a right to come in because I shed my blood for him. I'm his Savior. You're his Father. So he has a right. Listen to him, Father. I, I said it probably doesn't happen quite that way. It's, it's an oversimplification, I grant you. But it's something like that. Jesus opens the way for us to come to Father God. And we can't do it without him. If you try to come without the blood of Jesus, you deny the blood of Jesus. You die, deny the sacrifice of Jesus. You then become a spiritual reprobate, and you have lost your spiritual life, and you have no access to Father God. You deny Jesus. And when I say deny Jesus, you've got to believe all about him. You've got to believe the whole miraculous, supernatural event of Jesus' life, birth, and death. You've got to believe it all. That's what it means by believing in Jesus. You accept all of it, and then when you do, He's your Savior, and you have access to speak to Father God. And you have a right to talk to Him. You have just as much a right to talk to God and have God hear you as I do, or as anybody does, because you're a child of God. That's the glorious message of Jesus being our high priest. Now, Hebrews, the whole book of Hebrews, is a book of superiorities. It's about the superiority of Jesus Christ and his covenant to all things of the Old Testament, all the old things that have passed away. So the book of Hebrews, and I'm just summarizing some things in this book now of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews makes it clear to us that Jesus is superior to the angels. Now, you like angels, and you like to talk about them. You like to think they're all around you, and that's, that's okay. Nothing wrong with that. But the angels are created beings, and Jesus was there before the creation. Jesus is superior to the angels. So if somebody says, well, I heard the voice of an angel tell me, that's okay as long as what he tells you is in accord with what Jesus said. If it's not exactly lined up word for word, precept for precept, point by point with what Jesus said, then it wasn't an angel telling you. But Jesus is superior to the angels. He's superior to Moses. 
Can you imagine how that message set with the Israelites? Jesus being superior to Abraham, Jesus being superior to Moses, being superior to all the angels. And they believed in angels all, at least those who believed in the supernatural, to some of the Jews didn't, but those who did certainly believed in angels. And so here is the message of the New Testament that Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, lowly born, lived a lowly life by the terms of mankind in his day, is now superior in his death and resurrection. He is superior to angels. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to all the other priests of the past. This is what Hebrews tells us. It is a book of superiorities. And the superiority is Jesus is superior to all things of the Old Testament. And specifically, what we're talking about is his priesthood is superior to the Old Testament priesthood. This new covenant is superior to the old covenant. The new sanctuary, the very living presence of God where Jesus is sitting at his right hand, is superior to the old sanctuary, which was the Holy of Holies. And there's a superior sacrifice because sacrifices were offered, blood sacrifices were offered down through the centuries for the Israelites. No one knows how many Jews, not Jews, they weren't sacrificed, how many sacrifices the Jews made. They sacrificed the animals, the heifers, and the lambs, and and, uh, and all kinds of the shedding of blood. Because the Bible says without shedding of blood, there's no remission. All that shed blood of the Old Testament was simply pointing people to the fact to let them know in coming time when the prophecy were fulfilled that the shed blood of Jesus was required to cover sins, to forgive sins. They believed in the blood sacrifice. Now, they didn't have to continue to make the blood sacrifice anymore. Now, Hebrews says, Jesus Christ having entered once into the holy place, he entered once by his own blood, not by the blood of another. He didn't have to shed blood for the goodness of his own sins like the high priest did of the Old Testament. He shed the blood of his body for the salvation of the world. And by his own blood, he entered once into the holy place, into the holy of holies of heaven, having obtained eternal redemption for us. That's quoted from Hebrews. Now, when you read Hebrews, you'll find it. I'm going to recommend that you read Hebrews from chapter 1 through chapter 10 at least. By the time you get that far, you might as well read 10, 11, 12, 13. So. But you definitely ought to read the first 10 chapters. And I'd say read them more than one time. Uh, I'd prefer that you read them before next week when we visit this uh, great truth again and fulfill more about Melchizedek. But I'm going to now, I'm going to now use all the time I have left, which is not much to give you what Hebrews says, and this is only part of it. I'm going to read to you now from the book of Hebrews. If you want to follow with me as I read, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, the ESV, and I'm beginning to read in Hebrews chapter 6, at the very end of the chapter, verse 19. Listen carefully, or look at it carefully as we read it. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor. Now we have this sacrifice of Jesus and his paying the price for us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Sure and steadfast is definite, is certain. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Make the connection, what I was just telling you about, the curtain in the temple, separating the Holy of Holies. Read into, he said, a hope that enters this hope in that we have in Jesus Christ, solid, settled conviction, the reality of Jesus Christ and his salvation. That, and that enables us to enter into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, he couldn't be an order, a, a, a high priest after the order of Levi because he wasn't born right to be that. So he had to... You know, did you hear what that said? It said, I'm not sure I understand. <laughs> How appropriate can it be? <laughs> that, that lady's name is Siri, and she doesn't understand a lot of things. You got a better understanding than you. <laughs> got to keep my hands in the right place. 
So, so, so he became a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek was not a Levite. We don't know what the benefit of looking at Melchizedek. We're, we don't know where Melchizedek came from. We don't know who his parents were. We don't know who his grandparents were. If you were a priest in Israel, they knew who your parents were, who your grandparents were, your great-grandparents. They could trace your lineage all the way back to Levi because they kept the genealogical record. So they, they, nobody was a priest that wasn't qualified to be one. Well, Jesus didn't have those records. You could trace his genealogy. It's done, in, it's done in the Gospels in the very beginning of the Gospels. Not all of them, not John, not Mark, but the other two. It shows the genealogy of Jesus all the way back. But it's not a priest among them. Because he was not born into the priesthood. He didn't wasn't born into the priesthood. He died into the priesthood. He died to come into the priesthood. He rose from the dead to come into the priesthood, to be our high priest forever. And after the order of Melchizedek, because Melchizedek had none of the credentials of a high priest either, except he was appointed of God. Now, how would the Israelites believe that he was appointed of God? It just says that he met Abram, and, and, and when he did, he blessed him and pronounced favor upon him from Father God. And then, how did they know that Melchizedek was divinely chosen of God? Because Abram gave him 10% of all that he had. He validated the priesthood of Melchizedek. And if the people didn't know Melchizedek, the Jews of the Old Testament, they surely knew Abram and Abraham. They knew him. So their confidence was in Abraham. They were so proud of being children of Abraham, they boasted on it when they had no right to boast. They were so proud that they were children of Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's what you heard among them. So when they talked about Melchizedek, the main thing about him was Abraham said, he's the right guy. He's the one. He was validated. So Jesus of Nazareth was validated by being a priest forever after the order, not of Leviticus, not of Levi, not of the erotic priesthood. He was validated by being a priest in the order of Melchizedek, appointed by God and recognized by God as his own high priest. That's why he's the high priest for us. And that's the bearing of Melchizedek. Now let's read, let's read some more about Melchizedek. That was the end of chapter 6. Now this is chapter 7, and chapter 7 is what really covers Melchizedek. I won't get through this. I'll cover just a little bit of it, and I'll stop. And next Wednesday night, there will be part 2. Here's the beginning of chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, the writer recognizes the acknowledgement of Melchizedek. See, all these, all these Hebrews that he was writing, this book, the name Hebrew, he's writing his book to all these Hebrews, great believers in the Old Testament. He's writing to them to tell them that this Melchizedek was a priest of the Most High God, not chosen by any plan of man nor any order of man, but he was particularly chosen and assigned by the Most High God. So this King of Salem, Melchizedek, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. This is confirming the Old Testament, as Hebrews repeats it here in chapter 7. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, Melchizedek, is king of righteousness. Then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace, Melchizedek. He is without father or mother or genealogy. Now, what that means is he had no record to prove that he was a Levite to be a priest. You know, he, had no, he had no record of a genealogy to prove that he was qualified as a priest of God. He was appointed by God as a high priest. And the same thing about Jesus. He had no record to show that he qualified by birth as a priest. But he was appointed by Father God as a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so he is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, then he's also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father, mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. There's no record of his birth. There's no record of his death. He is a man that God sent, stood up there and appointed, and under divine authority, Abraham recognized him as a high priest of God. 
have any of the beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever, representing Jesus. That's why his death is not recorded, because his priesthood was to go on. The priesthood and the order of Melchizedek was never terminated, is what this is saying. There's no record of his death. That's not to say he didn't, that's no record of his death. So they nobody could prove that for all they knew, he was translated to heaven. There are some who say that he was. The point of the scripture, I believe, is that we don't have any record of his death. So he is, he is a high priest forever in the plan of God. And so is Jesus. By virtue of his death and his resurrection, the divine appointment of Father God, Jesus is a high priest forever in the holy of holies in eternity by the throne of the Father God. He is interceding for us, and he is there continuously now and always as a high priest on our behalf. Praise the Lord. And so then on into the chapter, there's, there's more in this chapter. I'm, I'm just leaving you the opportunity to read it, I'm presenting it to you. So uh, I'm going to jump down and, and, and cover this last part. The next week I'll take up, I think, right at this point, and I'll give you all these valuable understandings, I hope, of Jesus being the high priest that you and I come to. I've touched on it and mentioned it tonight. I want to develop that fully next week. So, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. That's the Old Testament priest. But this one, Melchizedek, I'm sorry, Jesus, this one, Jesus, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant the guarantor of a better covenant. So the better covenant that we live under, the New Testament, the new covenant, salvation by grace and not by works, salvation by faith, salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ, where we live today as Christian believers, that was given to us singularly, independently, separately from all the Old Testament that was given to us by the promise of God and the fulfillment of that promise. So, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, all the priests of the Old Testament died. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able, because he lives forever, because his priesthood does not end, he is able to live, he is able to save to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He is alive today, making intercession for us. I hope I've given you something. And this is, this is uh, as involved as this may seem to some of you, this is still very elementary, what I've shared with you. Tonight. Next week I'm going to develop this even more. And I, I, I hope this is the goal. This is the goal. I want to make you aware that you have access to God, that you have a direct connection with Him, that nobody has to stand between you. It's not that other people can't pray for you. I'm not even suggesting that. That would be absurd. But it's saying as far as you're coming to God, you don't ever have to wait for an appointment with somebody who's designated as your go-between, as your priest. You don't have to wait for an appointment with that person to get access to God. You can wake up any hour of the day or night, get up, whether there's a crowd around you or nobody around, and you have instant access to Father God. That's your priesthood. You don't go to a priest. You are the priest. That's what the Bible says. Now, I, I'm not going to, I'm not, uh, sort of not taking questions tonight because my time is up for tonight. But I'm going to take next week, and if you have a question you want to ask me, if you write it down, I'll try to address it next week. But next week I've got a lot to tell you about the detail of Jesus in the order of Melchizedek as a high priest. And it's so important to us because we need to know, we need to know that he's our high priest. And because of that, we can come to God and have our petitions heard and have
have them answered. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise God. Won't you stand with me, please? Father, we come to you in your presence tonight, and we thank you that even as we pray these words right now, even as we're speaking right now, we're speaking into the very ear of your heart because Jesus makes it possible for us to come to your throne. And we do not come by our own righteousness. We do not come by our own worthiness. We do not come because we have an entitlement. We come because Jesus paved the way by his shed blood and opened the door of access to come for us to come to your throne. And so right now as our Savior presents our case to you and we make our petitions known to you, we do what your word tells us. We come boldly to your throne to make our petitions known in a time of need. And that boldness comes not because we're worthy, not because we're deserving, not because we have earned it. That boldness comes because Jesus has told us that because of his death, when he died for us, we have direct and personal access to the Father, and therefore we tonight, right now, at this very moment, can cry out to you and know that there's nothing blocking the sound of our prayers or the petition of our hearts that's flowing into the very heart and mind of Father God to answer those things that we call on you to receive and expect to receive in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord God. Thank you, Lord God. And we praise you for it, Lord Jesus. We praise you for it. We praise you for it, Lord Jesus. We praise you because you have made the way. You have made the way. You have opened the door. You have given us access. And tonight we come to the Father through you and in your name. Glory, glory, glory to Jesus. Glory to Jesus. Hallelujah. 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 Praise Him. Are you glad you're where you are with Jesus tonight? You're glad you're where you are. You have a great, great place with him. So tonight when you go home before you go to bed, you can kneel down to pray and know why God is going to hear you. Know why God hears you. You have a right to be there, not because of your own righteousness, not because of the good things that you've done, or I, but because of what Jesus has done. We have access to him. Amen. Praise the Lord. Be seated, please. I want you to stand just to stretch for a minute.